Fast Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Steve Grasso coming up on Fast Cleanup in aisle five, the headline that sent shares of Macy's tumbling today. Plus, we'll speak with the CEO of an, a red-hot back-to-work play. Clear Systems makes thermal temperature scanners the big surge in demand they are seeing as the nation opens back up. And later, betting big on bankruptcy will break down everything you need to know before you dash for trash. A Fast Money Trade School is coming your way, but we start off with a record breakout for shares of Apple, the stock hitting yet another all-time high today on news that could be a major game-changer in the chip world. We kick things off tonight with Josh Lipton. All the details. Josh. So, Melissa, Apple, of course, already designs processors for iPhones, iPads, and watches. And now it is the Mac's turn. Apple is reportedly planned to announce later this month that it is switching from using Intel chips on its Mac computers. Instead, next-gen Macs will come with an ARM-based chip designed by Apple. This comes as Apple stock is on a roll on track for its best quarter now since 2012. The team at Evercore likes what they heard here. They say Apple's ability to design chips like this in-house is underappreciated by investors, in their opinion, as they believe this can help give gross margins a boost. It'd also be important for consumers. The report indicates that these new chips are more power efficient with better graphics performance. Lighter, thinner Macs could be on the way. And if these machines are attractive, it could help Apple stand apart from laptop rivals like Microsoft, Dell, Samsung, and HP that use the same Intel chips. Bottom line, how concerned should Intel investors be by all this? I checked in with Bernstein's Stacy Rasgon. He says this won't have a big financial impact for the chip giant. By his math, Apple's a low single-digit customer, but he says it could have a reputation impact if consumers, he says, now get more comfortable with Intel alternatives. Melissa, back to you. Right now, this effort is mainly focused for the, on the processor for the Max, Josh, but is there any belief that Apple could be, um, you know, this could be a precursor to making processors for other devices? Yeah, Apple already does, um, you know, design processes for other devices. It's 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 chip guru there, uh, Melissa's executive named Johnny Shruji. Of course, investors like this. Um, it, at kind of deeper, greater vertical integration, you can understand the potential benefits there in terms of cost savings, in terms of competitive advantages. Of course, there's risk there, too. You can say you have this chip, but at the end of the day, Cook and his team now will have to execute on that, Melissa. All right, Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton with all the details. On Apple, what do we make of this run here in Apple, Guy? And could this actually be an advantage? I mean, if you control more of your supply chain, theoretically, that could be good for things like gross margin. You would think. We think it helped margins a lot. With that said, you know, Apple's uh, historically known to sort of squeeze their suppliers, so maybe margins won't improve as much as we think. With that said, you're trying to find a place where you can buy it again. And I'm not pretending I've been some raging bull. I'm not. I've been right, I've been wrong, but the level you have to buy it, I think, is that 325 level or so, which was the previous all-time high. That's where you're looking for a re-entry point. You know, I, I think the next level on the downside is right around the 290 level where it was when it reported earnings. But bear in mind, you know, we've seen this over the last couple of years. You do have significant moves to the downside in Apple every once in a while. We saw it in the fall of 2018 when the stock went from an all-time high then of 225 down to 150, and we obviously saw it recently in the move from 325 down to 240. So it does give you opportunity. I think the first re-entry level is at 325 point. And I'll mention this as well. The good news about this today, obviously the percentage gain is good, but it didn't do it on ridiculously high volume, which means to me 
you know, it wasn't some buying uh, capitulation. Probably a lot of that has to do with the absolute price. But, you know, we've been averaging probably 45 million shares or so a day on Apple. We weren't close to that today. So I think that's a good sign going forward. What's your take, Tim, the, uh, on the broader reason why Apple's making this run? Well, it's interesting because, I, I, yeah, if you look at the move in Apple today, uh, whenever Apple moves 3% and, and you know, we're talking uh, about a $1.4 trillion company, so you guys can all do the math. And, and the level guy's talking about it, it, it three and a quarter. It was really just a couple days ago, but it really outperformed uh, the underperformance in Intel. And I think Josh laid out why uh, this isn't necessarily uh, a dark day for Intel. And I think this expectation had been you know, bandied about for Intel. But uh, back to Apple, as you ask, I, I think it's a combination of the fact that, first of all, uh, potentially more exciting graphics, more exciting AI dynamics, certainly a more modern MacBook, um, if, in fact, the, the ARM chip is, is how they continue to move uh, thinner, lighter battery, you know, kind of a sexier story to the MacBook, which is still not a big uh, needle mover. But I, I do think this is about uh, pushing on the supply chain. I do think this is about vertical integration. I think this is about Apple really being in the driver's seat, and, and that can continues to be the case even through difficult times. Um, I, I think it's interesting to note also that in mega cap tech land, this is the valuation during these times, and I mean COVID-19 and whatever the consumer is going to be, um, that, that Apple may be the, more, the most defensible uh, valuation of, of the mega cap, of the mega stocks, of the fang stocks, who all had a massive day today. But again, what do you put uh, 22, 23 times seems to be where consensus is, and that's a blended multiple between iPhones uh, and services, 16 to 25. Um, and I think that's why Apple moves today. How do you see the valuation, Karen? Well, um, I, I am long the stock. I see it as actually a little bit stretched. I think that um, obviously we've been talking for a couple of years now about the sort of migration of the business model towards a more steady stream of services. So clearly that's a higher multiple. But um, there's still, remember, there's a hardware company inside here. So that deserves a much lower multiple. And what's the right blend? I'm not really sure. We'll see how the, how the revenue seems to evolve toward more services. But I think, as Tim mentioned, I mean, there was a giant fang rally today. So part of the Apple move was that. And, and I agree with the points about if, if these are better chips and it makes for a better product, that's great. But also, making your own, there's not, that's not without risk, right? And it's also a intensive project to make your own. Uh, you do control the supply chain, which, as we've seen, that can be troubling. So that's a good thing. I don't know how much of the move that was really on this. I feel like more of it was this sort of fang rotation. And, um, you know, they're, they're clearly a fang stock. And I, I was really surprised, actually, how strongly the fangs did today um, in what I guess was somewhat of a kind of... Um, I don't know, rotation a little bit back, but still, I'm hanging on to Apple. I'm a little bit nervous of the valuation, but I don't have a better idea. Are you nervous, Grasso, about Apple specifically? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, exactly. I'm nervous about everything. So Apple is overbought, so it's registering a 77 on RSI. That's number one. Number two, services, everyone talked about that, $46 billion. So I'm not so nervous about that arm of the story. I do believe that it is breaking out on a chart. So I think you're okay, even though it's overbought. No, but, but now let's flip it. If I go the other way with the semiconductors, 
I think what is the headwind for an Intel could be a tailwind for an NVIDIA or an AMD. NVIDIA up 53% year to date, AMD up 23% year to date. So you know what I like to do? Would you rather? I'm staying in Apple, but I would go AMD on a would you rather on the semiconductors. I didn't ask. But I'm glad you did that, I think. Uh, I don't think that there has been a single show that you have been on where you did not self would you rather. Um, But I'll let it go. I'll let that go. Uh, Would you agree, Guy, in terms of a loss for Intel being the gain of of an AMD or an NVIDIA? I mean, one Bloomberg report said that the reason why or one of the reasons why Apple was making this move was because the annual chip performance gains for Intel weren't that strong. They were slowing down. And that's an overall right. problem for it. It may not be a problem today, but it might be a problem a year from now or two years from now. Yeah, and if, I know you're a Molly Hatchet fan, Mel. So I, when I say one man's pleasure is another man's pain, you know exactly what I'm talking about. A great song off of one of their albums. And I think the fact that Intel was just down marginally today speaks volumes about how important Apple is to them. And, you know, maybe the fact that you know, the margins really aren't there for them, so maybe it's actually a good miss. I agree with Steve on the self-would-you-rather AMD. And if you go back to April, I think 29th is when they reported. We actually talked about it. I think we said Lisa Sue's going to be on Squawk Box the next day. If you can buy this stock somewhere between 50 and 50 and a half, you buy it with both hands. And effectively, that's what's happened. It hasn't ratcheted higher. I think it's up maybe 12, 13 percent since. But, you know, 59, I think, was the previous high we saw in February. I'm pretty sure it's going to take that out. And it's not that I'm looking to sell Intel here, but I'd rather be long AMD. Back to Apple, though. I mean, you know, last year was all about the 5G phone and and another phone super cycle that could be on the way here. So, Tim, I'm just curious. Last week, there was just a report that that release of that new phone could be much later in the year. Are we pricing everything um, good with the associated with the super cycle because of the new phone in now? I mean, what's, what's going on here in terms of the trade but, ahead of that new phone release? Right. Well, and first of all, what's going on here? Um, please get control of this show, because when these guys are self-would-you-rathering, I mean, I, you know, I, <laughs> uh, just kidding. Um, I, I do think you have a case where you've got um, a, a company that, let's just quickly remind viewers that we're 62% off the intraday low on March 23rd. I think it's 54% off that closing low, um, about 72% off of the August 2019 lows, and then that June spike down low. And Guy brought up the fact that Apple's giving you these opportunities. The stock's up 100%. Um, I find it interesting that despite on a relative discount to the S&P right now, you can make an argument uh, on a forward basis uh, that Apple trades at a slight discount to the S&P. Um, that's great. But when when and Karen talked about it's still a hardware company at 20, excuse me, at 16 times multiple, roughly, which is where J.P. Morgan puts uh, their hardware business and different analysts, I think, are are largely lining up. That's significantly higher for the hardware portion of, of this company than than we were giving it a few years ago when we weren't throwing in the other parts in the service models to goose up the valuation overall. So is there a lot of good news in here? Yes. I think that 5G rally w- was really part of the rally going into uh, end year end and the part that had us really with our, our jaws dropping before COVID-19 hit. So that is the concern. Uh, there's no concern in terms of Apple, I think, in the strategic model. There's none of this. No one's talking about innovation anymore at Apple, right? And, and lack thereof. Um, no one's talking about capital markets dynamics. Those are good dynamics. Um, I think it's a safe company to own in this environment. But 
But uh, I, I think the valuation right now could be challenging if you think about things that may not work as perfectly as are, as are in the price. Is anybody concerned about the consumer? Is anyone concerned at this point that the consumer in this environment might not spend a thousand plus dollars on a new phone later this year? I mean, I, I feel like when it comes to this stock, that conversation doesn't enter the fray anymore, Karen. It's assumed that people are going to buy a MacBook or a phone later on. Right. That's based on many years of history of people buying a MacBook or a phone in uh, almost <laughs> any kind of market, right? Clearly, this is an extraordinary time. But um, I, think that, I think they will. I think the shift to 5G will be really important. What happens after that, I don't know. But uh, I, I think the consumer will be there. All right. Coming up, Mall Madness. New numbers out today showing just how bad the retail wreck is going to get. The names you need to avoid. And later, small caps hitting the skids today. One trader just made a big bet that the run is done. We'll break down that trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Retailers have been hit hard due to the coronavirus lockdowns. We're getting new numbers today on just how bad things could get even as the nation uh, opens back up. Let's get to Courtney Reagan's got the details. Court. Hi, Melissa. So there's so much unknown still related to the coronavirus, of course. But one thing many agree on, especially in retail, it's just further accelerated many trends that were already in place. Things like store closures, bankruptcies and the shift to e-commerce, among others. So CoreSight Research is out with a new forecast today predicting up to 25,000 U.S. stores will close this year. That is well higher than its previous forecast for 15,000 store closures and double last year's record 9,800 by its track. Up to 60% of closures will be mall-based, concentrated in apparel and department stores. While there's been a positive commentary largely from a lot of retail executives about consumers' early response to these store reopenings, there is still a lot of reluctance from shoppers. Store productivity is still far below pre-crisis levels for these non-essential retail players. Now, Macy's CEO Jeff Gannett spoke to me exclusively last hour and said his story reopenings have been better than planned, but he acknowledged e-commerce is playing a bigger part, and that may also mean possibly more store closures to come. There is a group of um, almost 100 stores that we were going to close over the next uh, two and a half years. You might see us accelerate that, uh, but we haven't made that full decision yet. As it, is, as it stands right now, we are reopening um, all of our stores, including our neighborhoods. And, you know, they're still serving customers. Macy's just closed on $4.5 billion in debt financing and an asset-backed loan. Gannett says he has plenty of liquidity to run its business. 70% of the stores are reopened so far. But, of course, that's not the case for everyone. Others are in different boats. We know there have been a number of high-profile retail bankruptcy filings during the outbreak, including fellow department stores like JCPenney and Neiman Marcus. And Corsite Research also does expect we're going to see even more bankruptcies to come possibly more Chapter 7 than the Chapter 11 reorganizations. And as you may know, Melissa, they're not the only ones calling for that particular prediction. Back over to you. Courtney, thank you. Courtney Reagan on the troubling retail sector. Um, Guy Dami, how do you look at retail in terms of who will survive and who won't? I think the stock market is telling you exactly who's going to survive and who won't. And we've talked about a lot of these names for example, Karen's Lululemon, which we've all talked about, they report, I think, 
this Thursday. That's clearly a survivor. I would point out, though, Wells Fargo just downgraded the stock. I think they raised their price target to 275 which is a really interesting level. Home Depot's been a monster. We've talked about that. Dollar Gen. The other names that are sort of, I think, really were failing prior to all this happening that have bounced on short covering rallies, I think they're destined to go basically back where they were. And I think Macy's is ground zero. You had a huge move in terms of percentage from that recent low. And I think it's just back to that same, uh, to quote Dennis Gartman, upper left to lower right in terms of a chart. So I think the winners and the losers in terms of the stocks, they've presented themselves. I think you just have to follow that script, Mel. If many of the bankruptcies are in mall-based stores, Karen, how should we think about the mall owners at this point? We should be scared for them, I think. I mean, so they really are a bifurcated bunch, though. So you have Simon at the absolute pinnacle. And, I mean, they'll survive, even though I think they are going to have to close on the very poorly timed Taubman deal. They do have the money to do it. Um, They just don't want to. But um, so they'll survive. But then some of the smaller ones, you know, we saw CBL uh, missing an interest payment. Um, They're not going to survive. Where I don't know, I I think probably a tanger does. A tanger probably survives for a few reasons. They have outdoors that will probably fare better as we open up. And I think, you know, outlet stores, I think that still will be a draw. They do have debt, but that would probably be the one to where I would go. In this environment, you want a bargain, right, Grasso? Uh, of course, you always do. But, you know, to, to piggyback what Guy was saying, when you look at the ones that probably are going to continue that terrible trend, you got to throw coal stores in there as well. So coal stores and Macy's, both down uh, 47% year to date. Who's going to survive? We know the Walmart. We know Costco. We know Amazon. But Target, probably the sweetest spot here because it didn't outperform early and still has some upward momentum. And then you look at the names that will get all that extra inventory, the raw stores and the TJX. So there's my uh, win-lose buckets for you. Tim, No quick. self, would you rather. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, uh, look... When I, when I hear the trends going on in retail, whether they are Macy's or, or Nordstrom's and, and the things that we said here, uh, more digital, more online, more you know, direct to consumer um, and, and fewer stores. I mean, this, this is I'm not telling you I'm excited about the sector, but I, I, this is what we've been waiting for for a long time. So for a lot of companies and, and, and you have to be careful what the stock market is telling you, because, of course, Macy's was up 100 percent off of off of its bottom to its intraday high today before pulling back 10 percent, along with Nordstrom's who pulled back 10 percent on Macy's news. But but we want to hear about these stores doing more online. We want to hear about these guys closing more stores. So um, this has been a, a major rallying point for L Brands, for example. So uh, it's not all bad news. It's restructuring that was forced. Um, what was interesting about hearing the, the, uh, the, the Macy's CFO today at the Cowan conference is, is basically pointing out the crucial nature of this holiday season. And, and I think that's something that we have to really start thinking about for a lot of these retailers, because it's placed a bigger onus on a holiday season that that, frankly, all the things we're talking about with mm-hmm. consumer trends uh, may be that much more challenging as the time we get into year end when some of this stimulus has worn off. Uh, Guy is raising his hand politely, so I shall call on you, Guy. Oh, mm-hmm. have to. And I know, I know we're running out of time, Mel, mm-hmm. and we're all in different places, but just watch what the crack staff and EC is about to do, because for a lot of these retailers, they're traveling down the road, Mel, and you know what they're doing? 
They're flirting with disaster. Watch. Flirting. Is this disaster. the Molly Hatchet that you're talking about? Hatchet. All right. Hatchet. Got it. Coming up, Dash or Trash. Karen takes us to trade school to make sense of this recent run-ups in some big beaten down names. And later, we are in store for a whole new world once we all return to work. We talk with the CEO of one company that is getting us ready to get back to business. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. There has been a serious dash for trash playing out in the markets over the past few days. Take, for example, Chesapeake Energy. That stock plunging almost 60 percent today on reports of an imminent bankruptcy filing. But the stock had actually rocketed higher over the past few days. And this follows similar moves in names like Whiting Petroleum, JCPenney, Pier 1, and Hertz. All of those companies have recently filed for bankruptcy protection. So is the bankruptcy bounce a sign of a scary speculation taking over the markets here? Tim, you're nodding your head yes. So what do you think? Well, it, it is. It's certainly a sense of day traders sometimes playing with, with information they really don't have. Remember, we always point out that the credit markets are significantly smarter. Um, and the drivers for at least the rally for Chesapeake was some sense um, that there could be some either forestalling of bankruptcy, but let's be clear, this is a capital structure um, that made no sense before COVID-19. Uh, and it's a capital structure that certainly doesn't make sense after it. So um, this isn't really a surprise. And unfortunately, the history on this company is one, five years ago, this was a $2,500 stock. Okay, it through reverse share splits and, and re, all, all these different dynamics, um, investors can get some sense if they're not doing their homework mm -hmm. that this is a healthier company than it is, frankly, if they're looking at the stock price. So um, be very careful out there uh, and, and, and trading on credit news where the credit committees uh, and the investors on that side of the market are in the flow and much smarter right. on what's really driving equity prices. Tim mentioned retail investors. Hundreds of thousands of, account, of accounts opened up in, uh, at Fidelity as well as TD Ameritrade. Leslie Picker tweeted this just about 15 minutes ago. Shout out to her. Stocks priced at less than a dollar in the Russell 2000, 29 stocks, are up an average 70, are up 79 percent on average over the last five trading days, excluding today. This is via a note to institutional investors from the institutional equity derivatives team at Citadel Securities. So stocks priced at less than a buck are up 79% on average guy over the last five trading days. This is an extraordinary time here when yeah, people are at home. They got nothing else to do. They might have a little extra money from stimulus, and they want to entertain themselves. And, and don't discount, I know that's been talked about and we've talked about, it, but don't discount the fact that with no sports, this is for a lot of people has become... Uh, you know, they're gambling, Jones. And I'll say that because I absolutely believe it. And it makes a lot of sense, those binary plays, you know, and greater fool's theory stuff. And Dave Portnoy, God bless him. I mean, he's crushing it, but he's been sort of the, uh, the ringleader, the, the master chef of everything that's going on. And people are going to make a lot of money clearly. But we've also seen the other side of this, and it's not particularly pleasant. So to Tim's earlier point, you know, I caution people. It feels like this is really easy, and maybe for a lot of people it is, but, you know, historically the market is extraordinarily humbling, and my fear is that day of humility might be coming faster than a lot of people want to uh, take into consideration. You don't actually make a profit until you sell. So keep that in mind. Stocks seem to continue to go higher. Um, so what happens if you actually own a stock when a company files for bankruptcy? A lot of you out there are probably asking that question. Karen is taking us to trade school to break it all down. Class is in session. Karen. 
Yes. Okay. So when a company files for bankruptcy, the shares may still trade while the company it reorganizes under the protection of bankruptcy. And what that means is that the company can stop paying their creditors. They can stop paying interest on their bonds. They can even stop paying rent to their landlord. So the second step is the, uh, the reorganization begins. And so they will go to bankruptcy court and they will work on a plan to reorganize the company. So the senior debt gets paid out first. And then after that, any uh, debt below it, unsecured debt. And then if there's more debt below it, that junior debt, they get paid out before anything else. And those payouts, they can be in cash, they can be in new debt, or even stock of the newly reorganized company. And after all of those get paid in full, then if there is any value left over, the equity, meaning the stock that we see trading, may get something, right? Very likely could get nothing. So this process is, at the shortest, uh, several months and much more likely to be years before this all plays out and we see who gets what. So there are clues for that, for that retail investor to try to understand, okay, how much value will there be for the equity? So first, as Tim said, you gotta always look to the credit markets, right? So they're much smarter than the, than the equity markets, particularly in a bankruptcy. So I brought, we have an example of the Hertz bond here. So this is not the most junior bond, but this is sort of a mid-level bond. So this is trading at 39 cents on the dollar. So that's telling you that they don't expect to get paid that full 100 cents in the bankruptcy process, right? So that, that's a really big red flag. So another big red flag is to look at the short interest of the stock. So, I, so we see Hertz again, we see the stock after things were great and then after everything started to fall apart, the short interest skyrocketed. So I, saw, I was looking to see, one, is there stock available to borrow today to short? And two, how much would it cost? So actually there was no stock available to borrow. And even if there were, it would cost 70% per year to locate a borrow, to be able to lock in a borrow. So that's another giant red flag. So to wrap it all up, if you were buying some of the 300 million shares of Hertz that traded today, just be aware this is absolutely the greater fool theory. You have to be very confident that there are a lot of fools, far, far more foolish than you are, that you'll be able to tell, sell the stock to later in order to not lose money. And if you really have confidence in that, well, you know, as Dan would say, have at it. Have at it. Hertz is up more than 500% since June 3rd. So if I'm a fool out there uh, who owns Hertz stock since then, Grasso, I'd say, you know what, guys? I'm making a lot of money right now. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Because <laughs> I'm sure a lot that's, of people at home are saying, you know, that, that, you know what? Right. I don't care what you say. I'm up X hundreds of percent at this point. Right. So, so when you look, you break it down to Karen's point, when you look at Hertz or Chesapeake, they both had uh, 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 basically a, the, the short interest of 35 to 40 percent. So when you start to see this thing get covered, people think it's a buying opportunity. Screens on their desk is a buy. They start to buy it. They start to chase it. But to your point, a profit is a profit is a profit. So whether or not the company will exist a year from now, these people that are trading it are looking at it existing a week from now or 
10, 10 minutes from now. Now, the other thing is when you look at the cheap price of the stock, you know what your downside risk is. It's what you've paid for it. But when you buy an Amazon, no one can afford to buy a thousand shares of Amazon if you're an average retail investor. You can buy a thousand shares of Hertz or a hundred shares or whatever it is. So they're easier to manipulate. But a lot of these are short covering rallies that spark other people's interest as well. Uh, last words, Guy, would you like to impart any words of wisdom to our trading public? Well, I got a great bad news bears story that would go great with this, really would fit in perfectly, but it's too long. But it involves <laughs> Engelbert when he grounds one back to the pitcher and the pitcher holds the ball and that Engelbert runs around the bases. He got it. You know, it's basically a home run, but it doesn't feel particularly satisfying. That's this market in a nutshell. Look it up. We shall during the commercial break. Coming up, the latest social media app to come under fire for its handling of the Black Lives Matter movement. Why next door is having trouble with its neighbors. Those full details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Silicon Valley startup Nextdoor, the latest social media company to take heat over its handling of the Black Lives Matter movement. Deidre Bosa joins us with the details. Deidre. Hey, Melissa. So Nextdoor is a hyper-local social network, and it's long been accused of enabling racial, racial profiling and enabling police uh, police surveillance, rather, citizen policing, excuse me. Now in the wake of George Floyd's death in police custody, people say that their Black Lives Matters posts are being taken down and that the movement is being suppressed. This past week, rumors about an Antifa invasion have spread on the network. Meanwhile, posts condemning the BLM movement, All Lives Matter comments, and even threats of violence are getting a platform. Now, Nextdoor is trying to catch up, but it's relying on its hands-off approach. It's neighborhood leads. They're the ones who can review or remove reported content and they're unpaid volunteers with no formal training. Now, in response to deleted Black Lives Matters posts, the company says that they arose from confusion because this is a national topic, which typically isn't permitted on the platform. Now, Melissa, unlike Twitter or Facebook, Nextdoor posts, they're supposed to remain in their neighborhoods. They're not supposed to go viral, but at the same time, that can make people uncomfortable about where they live. Now, the startup, as you said, is a Silicon Valley darling. It was last valued at about $2 billion, and it has backing from some of the most prestigious Silicon Valley VCs like Benchmark, uh, Mary Meeker's Bond Capital, and Greylock. Now, though, it is getting increasingly more attention for all the wrong reasons. Back to you. But Deidre, just to make clear, unlike some of the other social media platforms, the people who conceivably uh, can, can moderate with the content on that site, they're volunteers. They're not paid by the company. They're not paid by the company. They're volunteers in which the neighborhoods that they monitor. So they don't have any formal training. And sometimes they're people who are the most active in their communities. And that may not always be for the best reasons. Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa. Well, that seems like a really treacherous idea, Karen. <laughs> it does. It does. And remember, the, the CEO is Sarah Fryer, who is a very talented executive who was the CFO of Square during their you know, meteoric rise. Um, I, I mean, I, this is a difficult one to address, but I think there's a, uh, there, if there's a um, 
executive who can do it, I think she can. Tim? Well, this, I, I don't know the, the platform well, um, but what's described here is, you know, we're taking a hands-off approach on the people who have a hands-on approach. And, and that sounds uh, like second derivative, you know, beyond where uh, Facebook is on one side and say Twitter's been on the other side, although Facebook now has decided they're not on that side. So again, um, not being a political arbiter and being totally hands off um, has been a complicated issue. It will remain a complicated issue. It, it's, it's pretty interesting to see uh, that even as, uh, as Mark Zuckerberg has, has waffled uh, on this issue, um, Facebook is hitting all-time highs. So we, we had some, some you know, we, we queried whether part of the re-rating in Facebook, whether it was their, their brand's platform that was coming out and some of the opportunism around COVID-19, or was it that they were becoming seemingly uh, more political by being apolitical? And, and uh, uh, it's very clear that today Facebook is uh, at record highs uh, independent of the decision that Mark Zuckerberg has made. Yep. Coming up, we'll be joined by the CEO of Clear Systems. Its technology could be the new normal as America gets back to business. Plus, could the small cap recovery be over? One trader is betting the rally is about to be stopped in its track. Stick around. We'll have much more on that ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out this red-hot back-to-work stock. Clear Systems is up 32% over the past two months. The company makes thermal temperature scanners, and it is seeing a big spike in demand as workers start coming back into the office. Joining, now, joining us now is the CEO of Clear Systems, Jim Cannon. Jim, great to speak with you. Thank you for having me. We are talking about elevated skin temperature screening, so checking your, your temperature as you come through the door, and already your technology is on, on factory floors and such. I'm wondering how you see demand for a product like this after the pandemic. Uh, you know, if you take a look at past pandemics like MERS and SARS, there's a big spike, and then it abates shortly afterwards. You're exactly right. And the short answer is we're not certain. We've got a lot of experience with this dating back 17 years in the original SARS outbreak. Demand in the past was principally just in Asia, Asia Pacific and mostly at ports and borders. Uh, this is very different as we see demand around the world and from just about every industry as people find safer ways to return to work. Uh, certainly, we expect continued demand until there's some sort of vaccine and such, but, but that's a, a really an unknown right now. Do you think when there is a vaccine out there, Jim, that demand for, for EST screening, it, it comes to an end? You know, I'm sure some demand will stop, but a lot of essential industries are learning real lessons from this. I know in our business we are, uh, and who knows when or if there'll be another pandemic. So I do think critical industries, uh, you know, Department of Defense and, and other, you know, must operate operations will look at ways to incorporate this as a standard safety feature going forward. Uh, in your in your first quarter results, Jim, on the conference call, I believe in early May, you noted that several uh, customers, large customers, were looking at some pretty large deployments. I'm wondering what the status uh, of those possible deployments are, and if your supply chain can keep up with that. There is some concern that COVID itself is straining the supply chain, which would impact your ability to fulfill these deployments. That has been the governor uh, on our execution against the backlog so far. Some of our supply chain wasn't considered essential. 
Others, just the sheer demand we saw in the better part of the end of five weeks in Q1, $100 million in bookings. Now, our supply chain is quickly catching up. Uh, we've got the internal capacity as it does to meet much of this demand, uh, but it's been a, a tremendous amount of work uh, night and day among our teams to really respond to this, this unprecedented demand in such a short period of time. You noted also that demand for EST elevated skin temperature screening uh, technology has offset some of the softness you've seen on the commercial side of the business. Do you see this sort of as, as, as demand for EST comes down, that means America's reopening, and do you expect that rebound to come back on the commercial side of the business and the other areas of your business that you see softness from? Yeah, we have a really broad exposure at FLIR to a wide range of verticals from, uh, you know, defense applications to critical industry to commercial and almost consumer applications. So some of those verticals are down 50, 60 percent, for example, more than offset by the EST demand. And I do expect is is the markets return to work. We'll see those verticals strengthen again and certainly as we begin to deploy this technology and find a vaccine, we do, of course, expect the EST demand uh, to soften and somewhat normalize. Jim, pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Jim Cannon, the CEO of FLIR. Um, Tim, there are a lot of these sort of back-to-work plays out there that have risen uh, very sharply. What do you make of this one? Well, I think the, the, the software dynamic of this is fascinating. Uh, I, I I would agree with Jim that, you know, first of all, yes, he's been very cautious in terms of he has no idea where uh, well past COVID-19, uh, how adoption and demand changes. But it's pretty clear that airports and arenas and, and the ease in which we can make determinations about at least some measure of uh, a person's health can be made quickly, cheaply, efficiently. Um, why wouldn't this become uh, part of, dare I say, this term, the new normal, mm-hmm. um, or the workplace. Uh, you know, how may, you know, we've got a lot of workaholics in this country that will not stay home. Uh, and while that's admirable, it's actually uh, certainly something that should be condemned uh, at the same time. So um, I, I think this as a case in point for uh, where some of these trends continue well past COVID-19, uh, I would be very interested to follow that. Yeah. I mean, Grasso, you're back at work and they check your temperature, I'm sure, at least once a day. Uh, yep, every day to walk in the building, you got to get your temperature scanned. I'm not so worried about after COVID. What I am worried about is the government angle and the segment there. The government angle is 35% of revenue, 30% of sales. What happens in November? So I, I think you're hard pressed to find another president who has pushed a lot of funding into the military. If, if uh, President Trump loses, I would assume that budget is cut. And that's going to be a big dollar of value for FLIR. All right. Coming up, big problems in small caps. Options traders are sounding the alarm. What do they see ahead? And should you take cover? More on that next. Plus, check out this after hours action in shares of Chewy. Has this trade gone to the dogs or is it the perfect play for your portfolio? We will discuss, but we promise no more. We're going to promise that no more funds. OK, Fast Money is back in two.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Chewy tanking in the after hours, but beating on the top and the bottom lines. The online pet retailer just added a record 1.6 million active customers. Chewy CEO, by the way, coming up on Mad Money at the top of the hour. So let's get to Mike Coe, who highlighted a trade on this name last night. So, Mike, what happened? Yeah, so actually the options market, as we pointed out yesterday, was implying some pretty big moves. And of course, as you pointed out, the stock is trading a little bit lower here after hours, but that's partially giving back some of the gains that it made during the day today. A lot of the options flows that we saw today, and it traded over five times the average daily volume or so, more than 125,000 contracts, again, were bullish. But I think one of the reasons that we see this kind of activity, and I think Dan Uh, Nathan was highlighting this yesterday when we talked about it. When you see stocks have had these big rallies, and there might be good reasons why that rally could continue. You're trying to play off technical strength and maybe a good fundamental story. Still, it's tough when you've had quite a run like this one to chase by buying the equity. And so you're risking less by buying options. And I think that's probably what a lot of these traders were doing. All right, Mike, uh, let's get to small caps now. Some big gains uh, this month. But one trader in the options market is making a big bet that the rally has come too far too fast. So what are you seeing, Mike? Yeah, so an IMN, which is it's kind of like IWM, except it's just the value stocks uh, in that index, basically. It's the Russell 2000 value stock index. We saw more than double the average daily options volume. And today, that was mostly the result of a single trade where somebody was selling the June 110 calls and buying the 100 puts. They were collecting about a dollar to sell those 110 calls, spending a dollar 30 for those puts. So a little bit of a net outlay there. And I think what's going on here is another situation where you've had a very sharp rally. Uh, this index is up about 50 percent off of the March lows. And if you have you know, some of the stocks that are in this, this is a good way to try to lock in some of the gains. And I think that's what's going on here. Somebody is hedging against a potential decline of more than 6 percent by a week from Friday. That's when these options are going to expire. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Um, Let's talk small caps a little bit. There was an interesting stat that I read. Um, The most multiple expansion happened in the Russell Forward PE, actually to record highs. So it was up 13 percent in the month of May to about 19 times. That's up from 17 times, Tim. Well, you've seen small caps. If you look at the IWM, which Mike referred to, but not what he was mm-hmm. talking about, you've actually seen that the small caps have led the market and led the S&P uh, over the last 55 trading sessions or so, have outperformed the S&P by almost 14 percent. Now, th- they are seemingly more economic uh, sensitive stocks. And as we've gotten some sense that, that the, uh, uh, the drawdown, so to speak, in the economy and the impact was uh, possibly front loaded, um, that, that's where you've seen it. But we're back at a level here. And remember, I, small cap stocks underperformed for, for, for a couple of years going into COVID-19. And, and I think we've had uh, a pretty strong snapback. It, it wouldn't be where I would allocate my next dollar. Yeah. Karen? Well, I, I mean, they have outperformed in the most recent history. But if you look way back, they've, they've really underperformed by quite a bit. So I think they're going to have a higher beta, meaning if the stock market moves up, they're going to move up more in the reverse. All that having been said, though, I do think they're, I, would, if, I would be long small caps, short big caps, and I believe they will converge over time. And for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, one Wall Street firm says love is in the air, that you should bet on this name in a post-COVID world. That trade and more next. Welcome back to Fast Money. Love is in the air for Match as Morgan Stanley initiates the stock at overweight and sees a 15 percent rally ahead. The firm says... 
Singles crave human interaction in a post-COVID world, so is a time to swipe right on Match. I go to you, Tim. I don't know why, but I'll go to you. <laughs> well, um, I don't know whether to swipe left or right or up or down or whatever <laughs> they do. But but if you if you think about what what's going on here and some of these trends, uh, Match has been a, a a stock and an investment that's traded uh, well above market PEs based upon the growth. There have been moments here where we've questioned the brands and the demographics, but uh, it's a company that's basically got a product for every demographic and age group guy, Dami. So um, I think as we look at, at the multiple here, I, I actually think you stay with this stock. Whether COVID-19 has brought out new trends, again, we'll have to ask Guy about that. Um, but I do think you've got a, I'm just kidding, Guy is happily married, has a wonderful family at home. That was not fair. Um, and and uh, But I, I, I do think if you listen to, uh, and there was some fireside chat from the CFO that uh, has highlighted that the trends that they're seeing, uh, especially in some of these recurring revenue streams, are ones that are very, very strong right now. Record high number of singles out there right now. I mean, it's amazing, Guy. The demographics are on its side. So listen, so maybe... So maybe I'll take the other side, though. First of all, $91 <laughs> has been a tr troubling level for this stock twice, back in August of last year and back in January, number one. Number two, maybe, just maybe, when we get to back to some semblance of normalcy, instead of swiping up and down, left and right, people actually go out to places and meet people. Go places. The old-fashioned way, huh. like the boomers uh, used to do it. Write letters with quill pens ah, like and that. such. Um, time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Steve Grasso. Ross Stars. I, I think it's gaining some momentum here for all the reasons I said before. They're going to buy inventory. Pennies on the dollar. Ross Stars final trade. Karen Feinerman. Yes, please do not buy Hertz stock unless you really understand what's going on. Tim. Defensive trends, uh, potentially in the market. Verizon, high dividend yield, not the reason to buy, but a better balance sheet even than AT&T, uh, like this name. Guy. Newmont Mining on the crazy central banks. Be back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. <laughs>